you've done a lot of interviews with musicians. Who was the easiest interview, the most difficult, the favorite? I mean, come on, do a little name dropping. Oh, oh, okay. Well, you just mentioned Peter McDade. You're the third author whose novel has been published by Wampus Multimedia that I've had on the podcast, the others being Peter and Richard Folco that you mentioned too. What's in the water over at Wampus <laughs> that keeps them publishing these great rock novels? One thing about politics that I found was so many of the people who I worked with in that environment were also really passionate about music. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of those two worlds colliding until I read your book. Warning! This episode includes references to politics and music, intoxicated fictional characters, and the questionable identity of John Anderson from Yes. I got no problem with that. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is lit! Hey, Lit listeners, welcome to another episode of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Ben Stiller, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. For more info on the podcast, me, or Searching for Jimmy Page, check out my website, christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you've got an idea for a future episode, Maybe a favorite rock novel you want to see featured on the show, or you just want to connect. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. And you can email me at ChristyAlexanderHallberg at gmail.com. I love hearing from all you lit listeners out there. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Let's spread the word. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Ever wondered if politics and rock and roll had a baby, what it would look like? Jason Warburg is here to tell you. He's the author of the rock novel Believe in Me from Wampus Multimedia, a story in which young political operative Tim Green finds himself in the orbit of a super-famous rock and roll band. The son of a writer and an architect, Jason Warburg was building worlds in his imagination before he learned to ride a bike. Obsessed with music in his teens and politics in his 20s, he would eventually write both fiction and nonfiction, exploring these realms, culminating in his 2012 debut novel, Believe in Me. Next came My Heart Sings the Harmony, a nonfiction collection of writing about music, followed by Never Break the Chain, a sequel to Believe in Me. His most recent book is The Remembering, reflections on love, art, faith, heroes, grief, and baseball, an essay collection that doubles as a memoir of sorts. Jason continues writing about what matters most to him, whether in the guise of fictional protagonist Tim Green or in his own distinctive voice. He and his wife Karen have three grown children and two grandchildren and live in Seaside, California. Thanks for joining me, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. I know you're a serious music fan. Like, it's a constant presence in your life, much like me. And you've been writing about music and the artists who mean so much to you for decades. Some of those artists pop up in your novel, Believe in Me, such as Led Zeppelin. Thank you very much. (laughs) Of course. Bruce Springsteen, The Who, R.E.M., and on and on. The Flying Burrito Brothers even get a mention. And I love Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers, so I was glad to see that. Let's see if any of these musicians pop up in your responses to the prompts in five questions. You ready to play? I'm ready. What music video made the biggest impression on you? That is an interesting question, as much as anything, because my childhood was over before MTV ever hit the air. So music videos have never been anything more to me than kind of silly novelties. Uh, And I don't have a strong attachment to any of them. But... In the realm of video content and music, there is one movie that is still a touchstone for me, and I know a lot of other people like me, 
and which finds echoes in my work at, at different times in different ways. And that's Cameron Crowe's movie, Almost Famous. Yes, I love that movie. I thought you were going to say Hard Day's Night. Uh, well, that's a fair guess. That's a fair okay. guess. And especially because that album is the first album that I have a very clear memory of hearing uh, in my mm. older brother's room when I was probably four or five years old. Well, almost famous. I have that on DVD. I have seen it more times than I can recall. That was a really special movie to me, too, because I loved all the Led Zeppelin references in it. Well, yeah. I mean, Cameron was a huge fan and knew the band. And I, I, I love the story about when he wanted to get permission to use their music in the movie, he brought a special cut of the scenes that they were going to use the music in and, and flew it over to uh, show to Robert and Jimmy and get their okay. Way to do it. I'm glad that worked out. Yep. Okay, picture this. You're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in a corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Believe in me. Who is it and what do you do? You know, for that one, I, I have to go with the person who I bought tickets to see this week. And that's Jason Isbell. First of all, I have to say, I'm really hoping the drink is just ginger ale because he wrote the best song I've ever heard about getting sober. Um, wow. And I guess I'd probably take a few deep breaths and get my heart rate under control and then go over and say, hey, I noticed you're reading my book and, and just wanted to say hi. And if he wants to talk, that's great. If he doesn't, I tell him I hope he enjoys the book and move on. The one thing I try not to do is act like a fan because that's just embarrassing for both of us because I'm a huge fan. Sometimes it has to be done, but uh, yes, I agree with you. Just say thank you and move on. Yeah. Last night I dreamed that I'd been drinking. Same dream I have about twice a week. I had one glass of wine. I woke up feeling fine. And that's how I knew it was a dream. Last night I dreamed that I'd been drinking. Okay, this next prompt reminds me of a quote from your nonfiction book, The Remembering. And here's the quote. You might not even realize a song is burrowing into your subconscious until one line connects with a memory that's meaningful to you, and you feel the full weight and intensity of that moment again, as if it just happened. So, fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Well, this one's going to be very sentimental. When I hear Something in the Way She Moves by James Taylor, I think of my wife, Karen. Aww. We met freshman year in college right as I was getting into James Taylor, and the line really is true. I feel fine any time that she's around me. That's so sweet. Still, after all these years. Indeed. Okay. What's on your playlist now? Uh, well, that's an interesting one as well, because I'm an album guy. Uh, I'm not yeah. really big on playlists, but I, I can tell you, in terms of artists recently, that would include Springsteen, Jason Isbell, uh, Nina Simone. Um, oh, love Nina Simone. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that I only recently heard her for the first time, and wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's from my neck of the woods. I'm in North Carolina, not too far from where she was born. I think she was born in Tryon, and I'm in Asheville. Yeah. Well, what an amazing voice and an amazing talent. I've really been enjoying getting into her catalog. Yes. I got a few more. Um, Go for it. Fountains of Wayne. Love those guys. Love that that kind of uh, very catchy, upbeat, clever power pop. The new Death Cab for Cutie album, and my uh, my favorite English prog rock group, Big Big Train. I have not heard of them actually, so I'll have to check them out. They are worth checking out, especially if you like seventies Yes and Genesis seventies era. I do. Yeah, I do. Are they are they a new band? They've actually been around for about 30 years, but they really kind of went to the next level in about 2009. They brought in a new singer named David Longden and had a couple of folks join the band from 
familiar names from other groups. Uh, Nick DiVirgilio from Spock's Beard is their drummer. Uh, and for a while, uh, Dave Gregory from XTC was in the band. Okay. And the, the lineup has evolved some since then, but it's a remarkable body of music. When I discovered them around then, 2008 or nine. I kind of thought my my passion for prog rock was in the past. It was Yes and Genesis in the 70s. And they're making music now that, to me, is on that level. And, and I'm enjoying it very much. Praise indeed. All right. Duly noted. I will check them out. Last question. I know you like Nick Hornby's work a lot. What's your favorite rock novel? That's a tough question because there's a bunch of really good ones out there. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't, realize that, that it's a thing, that it's this whole subgenre with some really good stuff and a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So what's your favorite or some of your favorite? Well, let me let me rattle off a few here. A few years back, I really loved uh, Roger Trott's Getting in Tune and Rob Yardumian's The Sound of Songs Across the Water. More recently, I really enjoyed your novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. I appreciate that. I did indeed. I, I had to read it to prepare for this, of course. No, you didn't. I don't think anybody else did. <laughs> maybe one or two. One or two, maybe. Well, I did. And then Taylor Jenkins read her novel, Daisy Jones and the Six. It's not about a band, but Rachel Joyce's The Music Shop is kind of about how community forms around music. Really enjoyed that one. And then uh, my friend Richard Fulco's We Are All Together. I know you talk to Richie. Yep. But if I have to pick one, this week it would be Songs by Honeybird by my friend Peter McDade. I have not read that yet. I have it. And of course, he's been on the show. Yeah. The Weight of Sound. We, we talked about The Weight of Sound. And I'm definitely going to have him back on probably in the third season to talk about that novel as well. Well. So looking forward to it. It's a, it, it should be a treat for you. It's really kind of interesting because, again, it's not a novel about a band. It's a story about falling in love and breaking up and talking dogs and Buddhist philosophy and academic politics. In that sense, it's, it's very much like Believe in Me. It's, it's a story that's infused with music. And mm -hmm. there's a made-up classic rock band at the center of it that feels completely authentic and lots of references to Nina Simone. That's actually how I got on the Nina Simone kick. Ah, it's terrific. And, and as you know, Pete comes by his, his musical knowledge, honestly, because he was in a band for years and still plays all the time. Okay. Well, it's right over here on my shelf. So definitely get to it soon. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Enjoy. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Jason Warburg. In the meantime, have a listen to a song from Peter McDade's former band, Uncle Green. This is I Don't Want to Know About It. Back in a moment. This is Jason Warburg, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. We're back with Jason Warburg, author of Believe in Me. You just mentioned Peter McDade. You're the third author whose novel has been published by Wampus Multimedia that I've had on the podcast, the others being Peter and Richard Folco that you mentioned too. What's in the water over at Wampus (laughs) that keeps them publishing these great rock novels? Well, I'll tell you what I think the secret is. The man in charge over there, Mark Doyon, is a musician and a writer himself. And so he really gets the the intersection of those two passions and, and how that can play out, whether it's in musical form or, or in the form of a novel. Where does the multimedia come in? Are they publishing music as well as novels? Yeah, um, it, is, it is a record label. It is a book publisher. And uh, you'd have to ask Mark the the other things that he envisions as being under the Wampus tent. But by the way, he would be a great interview as well. Does he have a novel out? He has a collection of short stories. I read it about 15 years ago now, but I believe there there's a lot of uh, music infused in those stories as well. The first episode of season two featured Melissa Ragsley's short story collection. So I will, I'll keep him in mind. That sounds like something that would be perfect for Rock is Lit. Great. All right. Let's move on to Believe in Me. Here's a synopsis, shamelessly ripped off from your website. The story follows young campaign operative Tim Green, the grieving son of a recently deceased music writer and charismatic, politically active rock singer Jordan Lee, leader of the arena rock juggernaut Storm's Eye. From their meeting on the jet to a recording session to a sold-out stadium concert, Green and Lee hopscotch through airports and arenas across the United States, pursuing distinct yet similar dreams. So before we talk about the music part of this music and politics combo, let's focus on politics. Give me the skinny on your background in politics. How much overlap is there between your personal experience in the political arena and the character Tim Green's? Mm. I refer to myself as a recovering political junkie. When I was entering college, uh, I had an older brother who was working on Capitol Hill, and I was very interested in the work he was doing. I ended up doing a couple of internships in Washington, majored in political science, and then going to grad school out there in the the Washington area. And uh, I worked in Congress for four years. And then uh, came back to Sacramento. My wife and I both grew up in Northern California. And by then we had a young son and wanted to raise our family near our families out on the West Coast. And so we came back and I went to work in Sacramento and I worked in the Capitol there for about six years. And it was a great experience, but I would say for someone to find work life balance, in that arena is really difficult. And when you have a young family, you start to question your priorities pretty quickly when, when those kind of demands are made on your time. Yeah, I can imagine. So I moved into a, a different phase of my life, and I, I've spent most of the rest of my career in the nonprofit realm doing communications work. But the thing about, well, one thing about politics that I found was so many of the people who I worked with in that environment were also really passionate about music. Really? Yeah. Now that surprises me. This is kind of a funny example, but have you heard the story about Chris Christie and Bruce Springsteen? Okay. Well, I knew that he liked Bruce Springsteen, but I also thought that had more to do with the fact that Springsteen's from Jersey than anything else. No, he He really is a big fan. I think he is he is genuinely a huge Springsteen fan and is probably pretty bummed that, that Bruce does not feel the same way about him. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. I 
hadn't thought of those two worlds colliding until I read your book. And you are in the unique position to write about this very thing. I think the other thing about it is, and it's something that you know Tim talks about a little bit in the book, people who perform on stage, whether they're making music or whether they're giving speeches and trying to influence people's opinions, there's a certain personality type that tends to gravitate towards that kind of a situation. It's someone who wants their voice to be heard. It's someone who wants to, in some way, shape, or form, influence others. Well, now that you mention it, I recall watching news coverage of Barack Obama during the 2007 campaign and various talking heads saying he's a rock star. And now, ladies and gentlemen, President President Michael Obama. You gotta be sincere. You gotta be sincere. You gotta feel it here. Cause if you feel it here, well, then you're gonna be honestly. Sincere. If you're really sincere, if you're really sincere, if you feel it in here, then it's got to be right, oh baby. Oh honey, hug me, suffer. You do talk about in the book the difference in the similarities between politicians and rock stars. That comes up a lot. Tell me more about that, those differences and similarities as presented in the book. I think the difference is, as much as anything, in, in where they are coming from and what they're trying to accomplish. The politicians tend to be more of the establishment type status quo, and the whole ethos of rock is to blow things up and change things. Yes. So I think when you you have a figure like Barack Obama, who was in some sense, at least in his vision of himself, was was transformational, mm-hmm. um, and in his rhetoric was transformational. I think there is a strong parallel there with with the rock star, and one of the sort of dilemmas that Jordan grapples with, Jordan Lee, the the character in the book, grapples with, is what does he do with this big audience that he's earned through his music? Does he just play music for them? And and that's all that relationship is. And that's all the value there is in, in that communication back and forth. Or does he want to try to have more of an influence on, on how people feel about issues in the world around them? Right. Well, I'm also flashing on this scene when Tim accompanies Jordan Lee, the rock star, to a recording studio in San Francisco. And this is shortly after they meet. And you write in the voice of the narrator, Tim, here's a quote, we were in a bubble, a place I'd inhabited again and again, escorting Frank Cassini. And Frank Cassini is the politician that he worked for. Escorting Frank Cassini through the hinterlands of California politics. We were the center of attention. With deference and accommodation, the order of the day as soon as people came within range of our celebrity pheromones. He's noting that later on when Jordan is signing autographs, he was like, wow, this is interesting. Nobody wants anything from him. It's just pure adulation. And the difference, Tim was explaining, is that when people came up to politicians, there it was almost like making a deal. There was some ulterior motive involved in that interaction, and there was more of a purity in the interactions that Jordan, the rock star, had with his fans that I found really interesting, that dichotomy. Yeah, I think uh, especially with a figure like Frank Cassini, who's, who, let's face it, is, is not a very attractive person. <laughs> no. But his, his view of what he does is very transactional. It's... Here's what I can do for you. What can you do for me? And Jordan's whole approach to his life for reasons that gradually unfold over the course of the story, he feels like everything he does now at this point in his life should have a purpose behind it um, and a purpose larger than himself. 
That politics and music relationship that really forms the backbone of the novel is established early, right there with the two quotes in the epigraph of the novel. The first one, and I assume this is where the novel gets its title from, are its lyrics from the Counting Crows song, Mr. Jones. So here's the, the, the quote from that. Believe in me, help me believe in anything. I want to be someone who believes. And then the other quote in the epigraph is from George Bernard Shaw. And here it is. Democracy is a device that ensures we shall be governed no better than we deserve. What do those two quotes mean to you and how do they relate to the story? The first one was uh, the, the, the Counting Crows quote was there from the very beginning, from really right after I started the story, because I understood that the story I wanted to write was about someone like Tim who was admiring someone without really knowing them that well. And I wanted to explore how knowing them better might change that. And I was interested in exploring just the relationship between an audience and a rock star. And, you know, what are, what are the dynamics of that? What are the things that can alter the, the dynamics? I did not have the title of the book as Believe in Me until very late in the game. It, I went through seven or eight different titles. Early readers can attest to this. Every time it showed up, it would have a different title. I was looking around, casting about for what to call the story. And I suddenly realized the answer had been right under my nose the whole time. And when I did that, I went back and I rewrote the last paragraph of the story so that actually the last three words of the story are believe in me. Mm -hmm. And I love that the book is divided into sections and each section has those two different kinds of quotes as epigraphs, the rock lyric quote, and then to one degree or another, something kind of political. So it just keeps that relationship between politics and music going all the way through, keeps that thread, which is done really well. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that worked. And, you know, quotes are a lot of fun. So talk about the George Bernard Shaw quote. And here it is again. Democracy is a device that ensures we shall be governed no better than we deserve. That one really struck me because One of the things that's explored in the story is how the process can be manipulated and also how different people for different reasons like the system the way it is and are okay with the fact that it can be manipulated. And also that an awful lot of the time, many people just aren't paying attention. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't judge them for that. Not everyone needs to be a political junkie. Uh, Everyone has a life and priorities and things that they need to worry about besides what some politician is saying. But I do think that Shaw was making an important point, which is we're only going to have a government that reflects the will of the voters to the extent that the voters get involved. Yes. If you're not paying attention, this is what you get. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcast. I'll leave links in the show notes. Seriously, Rock is Lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rock is Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. Okay, let's 
continue talking about Jordan Lee. I'm interested in that character for a couple of reasons. And he's really the heart and soul of the mega band Storm's Eye. And he's described as politically active, kind, generous, and incredibly talented and charismatic. In fact, at one point, Tim wonders if Jordan is too good to be true. And Tim isn't the only character who wonders that. And it kind of exhibits this sort of cynicism about the existence of pure-hearted people. You've said that Believe in Me is a story about heroes and how we create and relate to them. So how does that idea of heroes relate to the character Jordan Lee? I think so often we want heroes to be perfect and we build them up in our minds and what society and maybe especially social media has gotten really good at is first building someone up and then tearing them back down Mm -hmm. and just blowing up the balloon and then poking it with a needle. And I was, I was interested in, in that phenomenon I also, because I have an idealistic streak and some of the musicians who I enjoy the most have idealistic streaks too, I was, I was kind of fascinated by looking at someone like that through that whole hero's lens and, and exploring what goes on there and, and how that plays into the relationship between artist and audience. Tim even talks about cynicism and and questioning, as I was talking about before, questioning the authenticity and purity of Jordan, at least for a period he does. But then he, he said, it's like he, he becomes a believer and he talks to Jessica Turner, who is a reporter for the LA Times who comes to interview Jordan. And he just kind of goes on this whole rant about how Jordan is the real deal. And he says to her, you know, everyone in this country has gotten so used to our heroes letting us down that we don't even recognize the real ones anymore when they're standing right next to us. Someone does something good and selfless and meaningful, and everybody's first reaction is to look for the catch. People think no one like that actually exists anymore. Not here, not now. But Jordan Lee, I swear to God, this guy's different. I swear. I think I'm guilty of the very same thing. I I think I'm guilty of the what's the catch sort of syndrome. If somebody is is projecting this image of almost perfection, but I don't think Jordan is necessarily projecting an image of perfection as much as he, he just holds back a lot. He doesn't, there's a lot that he does not allow. And we find out why later. Yeah, exactly. His public persona is a manifestation of how driven he is and he's driven by some demons and some dark things in his past. But what comes out, what's visible is this guy who's doing his damnedest every day of his life to, to live a meaningful life and, and to try to do right by others. And that was hard one for him. I mean, without getting into specifics, he came to that philosophy And that change, and it was a change, he came to that the hard way. Yeah. The other thing I would, I would say, I was, I was enjoying your reading back of of the dialogue with Tim. Tim's about four sheets to the wind when he gives that monologue. (laughs) Yes. We're going to talk about drinking shortly. (laughs) Don't you worry. (laughs) But yes, yes, he was. That's part of the whole, I swear to God, I, you know, I, I yep. should have done that in, in a drunk voice. I should go back and do that. So changing gears a little bit, your parents divorced when you were two and a half, and your dad pretty much checked out from your life for about 20 years, and you only got to know him during the last part of your life. This is the opposite situation Tim experiences in Believe in Me. I'm wondering why you decided to flip the absentee parent role in the novel. Well, I mean, first of all, I wasn't writing about myself. I think 
part of the challenge and part of the fun of writing fiction is exploring things that are related to and similar in some ways, but also different from things in your own life and your own past. There's almost a kind of a fantasy fulfillment aspect to it where you you get to create a world where you determine how things play out. Right. So it was, you know, it's it's Tim's background obviously in in some ways you could almost see sort of a distorted reverse image of it. But it was also a case of uh of write what you know, which is that I was I was raised by a single parent and so I worked some of those ideas and some of those feelings and some of those observations uh, into the story. And hopefully it worked. Let's stay with your family background for a bit, if you don't mind. Your mom was a writer. She was. She wrote and published 25 books? She did. Sandal Stoddard. Holy cow. Yeah. And you get your musical influence by your paternal grandfather, who was a, a cello player. That's right. And and I, I didn't know him. I met him once in my life. But I look back at that with fondness because I, I, I think maybe there is something in the genes. In a more immediate sense, you know, my, my passion for music came from growing up around three older brothers who were all into all the music of the day in the late 60s and early 70s. And then the group of friends that I hung around with in, in high school, we were all fanatic about music. So. Your mother was more classical music, as I understand it. She would play that. Yeah, that's true. She uh, she was classical music up to you know maybe Gershwin was about as as modern as her musical tastes ran. But I think I I referenced this maybe in the remembering about how she would crank up Mozart or Beethoven, and I recognized uh, a parallel there in, in terms of just sort of the rhythm and the energy of the music between. Those two classical artists in particular in rock and roll. To me, they were the original rock and rollers. One other thing about your family, your father was Jewish. I love that parallel in the book, and I I don't want to say too much about it, but Tim comes from a Jewish background. He's not a practicing Jew, but it does kind of come into play in a very poignant way at some point. And once I did a little research on you, I looked at that part and thought that was a very, um, a way to honor your father in a way. I mean, I know where it's, it's fiction, it's a novel, but it almost seemed like a, a bit of a nod to your dad. You're absolutely right. And I'm not sure anyone else has, has picked up on it quite as precisely as that. I, as a young parent, began to try to explore my Jewish heritage with my family. And I was kind of feeling around in the dark because I I didn't have a lot of contact with my dad when I was growing up. And I didn't have the the Jewish traditions to to go back to from my own life. I could I could read about them in books, I could see them in movies, but I hadn't experienced them firsthand. And one of the opportunities I took in in writing a novel was to write about someone who had kind of a a similar thing going on. In his case, his Tim's dad, Bernie, comes from a Jewish background but wasn't practicing and, and didn't really pass that tradition on. So there you go, another parallel. But yeah, it was really meaningful to me to to give Tim that opportunity to honor his dad and and it certainly was honoring my dad as well. Well it's powerful. And I think it's, it's doubly powerful knowing your personal story, too. So, well done. Thank you. It's not time to make a change. Just relax. Take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. There's so much you have to know. Or find a girl. Settle down. If you want, you can marry. Look at me. I am old, but I'm happy. A lot of Believe in Me has to do with loss and navigating grief. 
Tim lost his father and his job with the politician Frank Cassini at the beginning of the novel. And Jordan's also experiencing or experienced a loss. Loss is something that you, unfortunately, are very familiar with. Can you talk about that? Yeah. The genesis for this story actually goes back quite a few years before it was published. My stepfather died in 2000, and he was the closest person to me who had ever died at that point in my life. And it hit me hard, and I didn't really have the tools to process it. And one of the things that I started doing, in addition to therapy, which I highly recommend, was to start writing. And I actually wrote a a whole nother book (laughs) first, maybe processing some of those feelings that was kind of a classic coming of age, got to get this one out of the way before I write a real novel kind of first attempt. Right. And it's in a drawer and it will stay in a drawer. But then I was ready to start writing about something a little more current to me. And I had had this fantasy in my head going back to when I think it was 96 or 98, when some Democrats in New Jersey actually semi-seriously tried to draft Bruce Springsteen to run for Senate. What? Yeah, that really happened. Oh my gosh. And, well, we see how that worked out. Oh yeah. I think he's awfully good at the other job he has. So, but uh, that sort of fantasy played in my head for a while and I tried to think about what I could do with it. But by the time I, I had somewhat the sketch of a plot in mind, emotionally, I was absorbed in this grieving process. And then that became an essential part of the story. And honestly, one of the fascinating things for me as a writer is how you start writing a book thinking it's about one thing, and you discover halfway through, three quarters, maybe when you're done, you realize it's kind of about something else, at least as much as what you started out writing about. Right. You know, in looking at this part of your life, In a span of 20 months, you not only lost your stepfather back in 2000, you lost your mom and your dad, and you lost a job you'd had for a decade. Now, that's a hell of a lot of loss. You process that through writing. You continued working. Yeah, and that that processing really turned into the book, The Remembering, which (laughs) I guess I could probably say that about each of my books wasn't necessarily what I thought I was working on when I started working on it, but that's how it came out. I started writing about those experiences, writing about grieving each of my parents in succession, writing about the job transition I was going through. And I was doing the writing on the blog on my website. And the fascinating thing, I'd been using the blog for years, the way most authors use their blogs. Marketing tool. Yeah. I, I'm talking about, you know, sources of inspiration for the books and observations about the writing process. And some of it got a little personal, but a lot of it was, well, I can say this about my own stuff, maybe a little fluffy. And then I started writing honestly about what was going on in my mind and my heart as I was grieving my parents. And all of a sudden, people were writing back to me, and people were reacting to my social media posts and saying, wow, I relate to that. I've been through that. I feel you. And that feedback loop encouraged me and heartened me, and I ended up writing a bunch more of those kind of essays. And then all of a sudden, I had this body of work that was sort of halfway to being a book. I, mm-hmm. I I had about half as much content as I might want to have for a book. And, and I was still trying to figure out how it sort of would look if I tried to go in that direction with it. And what I ended up doing was going back and looking at all of the essays that I'd written over the years, because I had written my first op-ed pieces back when I was just about finished with my time in the capital in Sacramento when I was I was writing about political issues. 
and I developed this laundry list of, of essays that I had to work with. And one by one, I crossed them out, I crossed them out, I crossed them out and distilled it down to where I had a book that held together that had a thematic through line. And the, the through line is in the, the subjects that are in the subtitle. And it started to feel like a story. And when it started to feel like a story, I knew I was onto something. I get all of the items in the subtitle, but baseball, where does baseball fit in? <laughs> uh, baseball fits in because I'm a San Francisco Giants fanatic. <laughs> One of the hilarious conversations that I have probably once a week is people assume that because I'm so passionate about baseball and about the Giants that I'm a sports fan and I love hockey and football and <laughs> basketball and everything else. And I honestly couldn't care less. I will watching a, a sporting event, you know, if it happens by or someone invites me or whatever, but baseball is the only sport I'm passionate about and the Giants are my team. So, okay. There you go. All right. I went to a Giants game when I was 28, I think. And I can't remember, I know this, this stadium mentioned in the novel is the AT&T Stadium. Yeah. I can't remember if I went to Candlestick Park or that stadium, but I did see the Giants play. If it was prior to 2000, it was Candlestick. I think it was Candlestick. I'm trying to think when it was, but I think it was Candlestick. I think I was excited because it was Candlestick. The other thing about baseball is that it has been a thread that's run through my family for my entire life. Uh, it was one of the passions that my father and my older brothers shared. Mm. And then my older brothers shared with me, and then my father and I shared later in life. And especially towards the end of his life, it was it was one of the things that we just connected about through on in a really visceral way. And, you know, I, I, I think probably for the rest of my life, every time I go to a Giants game, I'll think of my dad. Right. And your brothers had so much more time with him. Because by the time your mother and father split up, they'd been married, what, 14 years? Or, or no, 17. you were 17. You were, yeah, it was about 14 years or so when you were born. So all those years, you know, your dad had had with your older brothers. Yeah, that's a beautiful memory and a beautiful thread that baseball connects you. And that's one of the things that, that my brothers and I have talked about a number of times, maybe especially in the last eight or 10 years is just reflecting on how our experiences of dad in particular were different because of our age difference and because of the yeah. different circumstances. Well, that's the same thing in my family. Because of the age difference, my sister often says, my mother was not your mother, and that my mother was very different with her than she was with me. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Tim's dad and music journalism. Tim's dad, Bernie Green, was a music journalist who wrote primarily for a fictitious magazine called Noise for like 25 years. Like politics, this is an area you know a little something about, having edited and written for the music review site, The Daily Vault, for years. How would you describe Bernie's style as a journalist? Tim talks about that a little bit. Uh -huh. He was someone who saw himself as a conduit or an amplifier for the artist. He saw his job as connecting the artist with their audience and facilitating that conversation. One of the things he faces at a certain point in his career, you know, probably around the turn of the century there, is that his peers are going into this modern style of making themselves part of the story and being very snarky and, you know, taking a shot or two at at the artist who they're reviewing or interviewing. And that was not Bernie's deal and, and 
that's not my deal. As a reviewer, I, I tend to be positive. If I don't have anything positive to say, I'll probably just pass on reviewing something. There are exceptions. Um, and those exceptions are typically an, an act that's very well known and successful and has no reason to really care what I think, but has done something that I think is, is pretty bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I don't feel, I don't feel guilty about being critical. You've done a lot of interviews with musicians. Who was the easiest interview, the most difficult, the favorite? I mean, come on, do a little name dropping. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I can't say anyone was really difficult. Maybe I've just been lucky that way. Maybe it's that, I mean, compared to people who do it for a living, I, the number of interviews I've done is probably significantly smaller than them. I can tell you my favorite story about an interview I did, though. All right. Since we already established that you listened to some Yes music from the 70s. Right. I was, I am, a big fan of Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, about seven or eight years ago, I had the opportunity to interview John Anderson. Wow. And as you can imagine, I looked forward to that a lot. I prepared a lot. I was excited. My wife knew I was excited. and. My desk space is in an open loft, and so she was down in the living room, and she could hear me when I was doing an interview at that point. Now I, now I do that in our spare bedroom. But anyway, <laughs> at that point, she could hear me interviewing. And I, I have my little setup. I have my recorder, and I have my phone on speaker. So she can hear both sides of the conversation a little bit. She can't hear exactly what we're saying, but she can, she can hear the voices. Right. So the time comes, the phone call gets made, I pick up, we start talking. I find out later, when we talked afterwards, she says to me, I was really disappointed for you at first because you were talking to a woman and you were talking to her for a long time. And I thought, oh, I guess John Anderson was busy and you weren't going to get to talk to him. <laughs> Well, if you've listened to John Anderson's music, you know where this is going. Yeah. He has a very high voice. Uh -huh. It's a lovely voice. But from a distance to someone who's not that familiar with his music, she thought it was a woman. She had a bless your heart moment. She did. Oh, well, I assume the interview turned out well. It was a good experience. It did. It's on the website on the Daily Vault, and that actually uh, appears in uh, my music writing collection, My Heart Sings the Harmony. Nice. this idea for the next bit from your fellow Wampus Multimedia author, Peter McDay, and his rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. The first one is drinks mentioned in Believe in Me. I told you we were going to come back to alcohol. <laughs> so white wine, which Jordan Lee's manager, Natalie, drinks at one point, Stoli on the Rocks, which I actually hadn't heard of. And then screwdrivers on the plane. Tim's drinking screwdrivers on the plane after he essentially loses his job with Cassini at the beginning of the story. He switches to vodka rocks. But white wine, stoli on the rocks, screwdrivers. I can only pick one, huh? That's right. Uh, I'm going to go with white wine. Yes, that would be my <laughs> choice. This is not a drink, but I, I'd like to give this a shout out. Vicodin. Let listeners read the novel to find out why. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> in, in that context, it's a beautiful thing. Indeed. Yes. Okay. Music formats. Tim's dad was a vinyl purist. He hated CDs. So I'm curious what your pleasure is. You can only pick one. 
Cassettes, CDs, or vinyl? The surprising answer is CDs. Really? I acknowledge and own the fact that vinyl has a warmth and immediacy that you can't get with digital. Sure. I worshipped at that altar for a long time. <laughs> but uh, when CDs came in, the, the ability to to rip things and create your own playlists and the fact that you still have artwork and liner notes and lyric sheets and all those things that were my next favorite thing about albums besides the music itself was really important to me. And where I come down as kind of a purist is on streaming. I avoid streaming at every opportunity. I very rarely do it. I would much rather have all of the information about the music I'm listening to at my fingertips. And uh, yeah. Well, that's why I don't have it as a category. I'm including tangible articles, tangible musical formats. So, okay, that does surprise me, though. The CD's answer does surprise me. But that's good. I like being surprised. I do still have a turntable. I, I, I didn't have a functioning one for a while, but I corrected that a few years ago. And and I'll pull out one of my old albums once in a while. But most of what I had in, in my vinyl collection, I then proceeded to replace in CDs yeah. over the years. So, Right. Well, I think it's a nostalgia thing, too, the sure. vinyl. Because that's what we grew up with. Okay, another category, music journalist. Since Tim's dad was a successful music journalist in the novel, and you're also a music journalist, I thought I'd include this section. Here are the three that I've included. Lester Bangs, Cameron Crowe, Lisa Robinson. Mm. Well, those are all good choices, but for sentimental reasons that we already touched on, Cameron Crowe is my guy. I figured you'd say that, especially after what you said earlier. And just the fact that he was so young when he got started. Yeah. And, you know, you're on tour with Led Zeppelin and you're a teenager. Oh, my God. It's it's a great story, which he made into a great movie. Yes, he did. Okay. This one is snippets of song lyrics mentioned in Believe in Me. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you I am not singing these. First one. Because I'm already gone and I'm feeling strong. Of course, that's the Eagles already gone. Next one. Big old jet airliner, don't carry me too far away. Steve Miller band, jet airliner. And the last one, take this job and shove it. Johnny Paycheck, take this job and shove it. Well, I got to go with Steve Miller. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's just because I've heard that song so many times that every line is burned into memory. That song takes on a whole new meaning later on in the book. It does. Yes. How in the holy hell did you get permission to use all those song lyrics in the book? (laughs) Well, you've hit on something that I still have nightmares about. (laughs) It was not easy. It was a very long process. I dealt with a lot of very helpful folks and a few not very helpful folks in the process. But ultimately, yeah, I was I was able to get permission for everything that's in there. And I also learned some things about the process, such as if you only use the title of the song, but not any of the lyrics, you don't need permission. Only if you're using lyrics from the content of the song. And in a couple of cases, I said, you know what, I can save myself a little work here by just using the title. So. And I love how each section of the novel is titled after a song. And, and here they are in the order of the sections. Going Mobile, The Who, Band on the Run, Paul McCartney and Wings, Instant Karma, John Lennon, and you know I love this one, Misty Mountain Hop, Led Zeppelin. And it's from Led Zeppelin 4, and it's the fourth section, so extra kudos for that. <laughs> well, those, those are really uh, kind of Easter eggs for all the music fans who are reading, and uh, I'm glad they worked for you. They were really fun to come up with because, of course, I, I started out with sort of knowing what was happening in that section and then looking for the right song title that, that would fit the action and also maybe say something about the action. And they work perfectly. 
They're the perfect choices. And there's even an encore. Right. <laughs> right. The prologue is called an opener and the epilogue is called an encore. Okay. Here's the last category. Guitarist. Think really hard about this. This is important. It is. Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page. Or Jimmy Page. Well, I guess I'm going to have to go with Jimmy Page. Which Jimmy Page? There are three. <laughs> oh, I see. Um, you know, I think I'm going to go with Led Zeppelin II for Jimmy Page. Okay. Now, I hadn't thought about it when I put that there, but he really did have three different stages in his career, probably more than that. Starting out with the Yardbirds and then Led Zeppelin and the solo material. So I'm, I'm going to put you in the middle there. Okay. I was thinking in terms of, of albums, and I went to, well, there are so many just classic riffs and solos on Led Zeppelin too. Yeah, that's a great album. All right, Jason, what have you got going on now that you want to tell people about? Well, uh, funny thing. We've been talking a lot about Tim Green, and uh, I haven't written about him since Never Break the Chain, which came out in 2017. You have to come back on the show and talk about that. Uh, I would love to. And I am now writing about Tim Green again. I, really? When, it, when I wrote Believe in Me, I did not think I was writing a series. I thought I was writing a story. And I thought the story was complete. And then I realized that there was one thread having to do with Tim's mother that I thought I could make into a whole other story. And so that became Never Break the Chain. And one of my readers, actually, uh, Richard Folco, when I shared Never Break the Chain with him, he, he said he liked the story, but the one thing he wished was that there was more of Bernie in the second story, Tim's dad. Yeah. And that kind of kicked around in, in the back of my mind for a couple of years. And I started thinking about what a story that was more focused on Bernie would be like. And I'm maybe a quarter to a third of the way into what I think the book is going to be. As we've discussed, it's already kind of evolving on me in the writing. But it's, it's going to be delving more into uh, Bernie's past while also allowing Tim to connect more with his roots. And of course, there will be a lot of music. Absolutely. I, I would hope so. I would hope so, given his career. I, I will say that I, I think I've learned my lesson and there will be fewer direct quotes from lyrics. I think that's a wise decision. Well, thank you so much for being on Rock is Lit. And where can folks go to find out more about you and buy your books, including Believe in Me? They can go to my website at www.jasonwarberg.com. Excellent. I will put links in the show notes. Thank you so much. One thing that you can do. Ah, sorry. My mind just blanked. A few moments later. Okay. Where was I? <laughs> Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time. Keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.